welcome to the Hope Dealers Podcast. I am your host, Sean Fitzpatrick, and we are here telling you amazing hope-filled stories from the world of Hope is Alive Ministries. As the media marketing coordinator of Hope is Alive, and uh, as well as a HIA alumni, I have had the pleasure of witnessing so many miracles over the last few years, and it is my honor to be here hosting the Hope Dealers Podcast. You know, with over 20 sober living mentoring homes spread across the country, there are always so many miracles and stories taking place in our world. And as Hope Dealers, we love sharing those stories with those who need to hear them the most. You know, whether you're a resident of the Hope is Alive program, maybe you're a family member of one of our residents. Maybe you're a current or future supporter of HIA, or most importantly, if you're the mom or dad of someone struggling with addiction, our hope is that these stories will bring you strength and hope in your journey. Okay, welcome back to the Hope Dealers podcast. We are live today from Wichita, Kansas, uh, here at the men's home. And sitting here with me is a very good friend of mine with a very amazing story, our senior program manager, Julie Quinlan. Julie, how are you? Well, I'm okay today. You okay today? (laughs) Yeah, I'm doing pretty good so far. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Julie was a guest on the now defunct Hopecast. Was it about two, two and a half years ago? Yeah, just about. Yeah. That was Hope is Alive's first uh, venture into the podcasting uh, world, but she's uh, back now with us today and quite a a lot's happened since then, yeah? A lot has happened since then. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, the first time we met with you on on the podcast, you were, I mean, you had just started your job, right? Yeah, I literally just moved up to Wichita. I'd only been there for a couple months, new to my job, new to the city, new to everything. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And, but today you're a senior program manager for HIA. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So right now I oversee both Wichita and the Kansas city women's homes. Um, I kind of float back and forth between the two. Um, that is pretty recent as well. Um, but so far it's really good. I, I like this new role quite a bit. That's, that's just awesome. Yeah. Um, so you've got a wonderful, wonderful story. Um, a lot of us who have been around you for a while have been uh, fortunate enough to hear it. But, you know, for our listeners out there, whether it's a resident, a current or future supporter, or most importantly, you know, the parent of an addict, uh, that's the idea of the Hope Dealers podcast is to hear some amazing stories that will hopefully give them strength in their journey. So let's just start at the beginning. Um, what was your childhood like? So my childhood was pretty normal so to speak. Um, I had, I had parents that were divorced, but I never went without. Um, there wasn't a lot of turmoil or uprooting or anything dramatic, you know, that happened in my early childhood. I was an athlete. Um, my dad raised me to be interested in pretty much all sports. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I had what ended up being four loving parents. Right. Yeah, my, both my parents got remarried. Um, so it was pretty normal. You yeah. know, I, I was interested in school. I did well in school. Um, like I said, I'd played a lot of sports. Um, nothing that would indicate what eventually was a pretty severe drug addiction. Sure. Yeah. And for those of you listening, um, you know, if you've got, if you're stuck in addiction or if you've got a family member that is that that's how a lot of these stories start was I had a normal childhood. Yep. It was fine. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, and my mom says all the time, how did we get here? Well, I, I mean, I know how I got here, but it was no, it wasn't, um, my childhood was not an indicator of where I would end up. 
Yeah. And it's funny because sometimes we, you know, when we have this great childhood and we look back and we see how normal our life is, that's kind of the dangerous part for us because then we're like, well, I'm not really an addict or I'm not really an alcoholic. Cause I mean, look at my surroundings. That's right. You know, I'm, I'm fine. And, uh, it turns out that, you know, you don't have to be in a rough upbringing to, uh, absolutely to fall to this disease. That's so, right. so when did you first, you know, fall to, uh, your addiction? So you know, I find it funny. I, so alcohol come to find out was the very first thing that I had a problem with. I honestly didn't realize that until I moved into the Hope is Life program and started working through the steps of AA. And um, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't until just a couple of years ago that I was able to admit, man, I had a problem with alcohol. <laughs> yeah. When I was like, you know, 17, 18 is when I first started drinking. Um, and now I can look back and say that was a common thread through all of my 20s was like, yeah. you know, what started out as social drinking, um, like the occasional party or whatever sure, in high yeah. school, um, that quickly turned into, um, you know, every weekend, every night. And it was to a blackout extent, almost daily, you know, yeah. in the, in the, about the, you know, my mid twenties or so. Right. Um, but I didn't realize that until I got sober. Yeah. I talked to a lot of people who feel that their you know, their addiction really was just drugs yeah. and they don't really find the alcohol part to later on, because even after we get clean sometimes like, well, the alcohol was different because that was just so socially acceptable. Right. Absolutely. You know? Um, and that was me. I know for, for myself, you know, I actually started doing drugs when I was a lot younger and it wasn't until my early twenties that I found alcohol. Mm -hmm. And the whole point was to get my family off my back about the drugs. Yeah. So it was like, okay, well you guys are all drinking. Everybody's drinking. There's right. commercials about drinking. That's right. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was the norm. Like you said, you know, um, my family members, uh, can drink like normal people. Yeah. Um, and I thought I was doing the same thing now looking back, that wasn't the case. Right. Cause I mean, no, I may not have been waking up and needing it to function, mm -hmm. but I did need it to like go out every night and to be social and to be, this um, person that I thought everybody wanted to be. I felt that alcohol did that for me. Yeah. So yeah, that was a, that was the beginning. <laughs> yeah. You said something that was uh, interesting to me, that person that everybody wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you, I mean, and I'm sure you've, it's been the same how many times I've over the years, I would talk to people who were trying to get clean from drugs and trying to find a new crowd to fit into. And I would say, well, how are you doing? And they, well, I'm, I'm clean now, man. I only drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That seems to be a, that's a, that's a pretty common phrase out there for yep. a lot of people who are in denial of all of this. So, that's right. so moving along, um, through your twenties, you know, what does that look like? So through most of my twenties, alcohol was like my drug of choice. Mm -hmm. I did experiment every now and then, you know, with random things. Sure. Like I think ecstasy was one thing that I experimented with a couple times in my, <laughs> yeah. in my twenties. Um, but it wasn't until I, um, was introduced to prescription pain pills. Mm. I mean, that was different. Um, so I got introduced to them and it, same as alcohol is recreationally. Someone said, Hey, you know, let's, let's just try this. It could be fun. And so I did. Um, started out to be a once a month habit because we were getting them illegally sure. from somebody who had a prescription and that's how we would spend like a whole weekend. We would just, you know, eat these, eat these pills and, 
and party for a weekend and then put it down. Yeah. Is how it started. Um, That's how it always starts. <clears throat> yeah. And I, I really like the way that prescription opiates made me feel Yeah, like what alcohol did for me. Prescription opiates did that 10 times more. Like it made me feel free. Mm -hmm. um, it, it made me, um, it was weird. It was like, I liked who I was whenever I was on that. Yeah. And also opiates for me created something in my body that gave me like this, this energy that I didn't have without it. Right. And that's, that's what drove my addiction was, um, I needed something to get me going and you know, opiates did that. Yeah. Um, and for me that turned into a once a month habit to a daily need very quickly. Um, my, the way my body reacts is I needed, I needed it before I, you know, if I didn't take it, I would start to get sick and I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Then I also, I wanted to feel good. Like I was, I was taking these drugs and drinking not to necessarily hide or mask anything. I like the way drugs made me feel. Right. That's how it, you know, that's how it, they worked for me. Yeah. A lot of people out there, um, will tell you like, oh, well it helped mask this feeling that I had. And that's completely natural for those of you listening. If that's you or that was you, um, or that's a loved one of yours, that's completely natural. But there's the other side of the coin where mm -hmm. it's like, no, everything's fine. I just like how this makes me feel. That was exactly me. Like it just made me feel alive and I was very chatty and social and I, it just, I don't know. It just made me feel better about everything about myself. Yeah. When you, and not to jump ahead too far, but just uh, while we're on the subject, you know, when you got cleaned up, did you find that it was harder to be yourself without all of that? I felt very uncomfortable. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I know that in my addiction, I was, I would probably be known a lot more as an extrovert. And I, oh, think, yeah. <laughs> I think today I remember I was, I was at an event the other night and they asked me, uh, well, would you consider yourself more of an introvert or an extrovert? And I was like, ah, I don't know. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. So, okay. So it becomes something that you have to have mm -hmm. every single day. Yeah. And uh, as we know, that never ends well. No. Um, and it's, it's shocking how fast that happens. Yeah. Like I'm, I have a long history of drug and alcohol abuse. So it's really hard to pinpoint like exact dates and, and stuff like that. But I mean, it was so fast that it became a daily habit. Um, I almost don't remember when it wasn't yeah. a daily habit. Um, and that slowly started to, at first, it slowly started taking things away from me. Um, I mean, first it took away my ability to be honest about anything because I was completely hiding that. Right. Um, some people knew that I did that recreationally, but nobody knew um, that it was a daily habit. Yeah. I hid it from, um, at the time, my, my ex-husband, I had it from my parents. I had, I, you know, I hid it from everybody except for the people I was buying the bills from. Sure. Yeah. They, <laughs> they, they, they probably they loved me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it slowly started taking stuff away. Um, it was affecting work. It affected my marriage. Um, it affected my family life. Yeah. Um, and then it all just kind of came to a head and I reached out to my mom and she put me in a, in a detox in Oklahoma city for 11 days. Okay. Um, and I got sober there from opiates. Right. Yeah. Now at this point though, are you wanting to get sober or are you just kind of trying to appease people? Um, it was more trying to appease people and mm. run away from the problems that were happening at my home. Sure. Um, I, I did want to get sober because 
I knew I couldn't financially keep up with that habit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, and I, and I knew enough that it was taking things away from me, but, mm-hmm. um, I mean the, the biggest reason I went was to get people off my back. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't, I know I didn't want to use opiates anymore. I knew that that's the hardest thing I've had to, um, come off of ever. That mm-hmm. was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, um, physically yeah. was come off of opiates. Um, but I did. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't stay clean though. <laughs> she didn't stay clean. Did well, we're going to take a quick break and then, uh, hear a word from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to hear what happened next in the amazing story of Jolie Quitler. We'll be right back. This episode of the Hope Dealers podcast has been brought to you by Finding Hope Support Groups. Finding Hope is a support group for loved ones of addicts. Through our meetings, you'll find education, inspiration, and a community of other loved ones who have been impacted by addiction. Finding Hope Support Groups currently has 40 meetings across the country. To find out more, visit findinghope.today. Okay, Julie, so you didn't stay sober. I did not. (laughs) What happened? Very quickly, um... I thought, well, first of all, let me just say that I didn't really know anything about addiction. Right. Like I knew, I, I knew I was addicted, but I didn't know how addiction recovery, I didn't know how any of that worked or really what it was other mm-hmm. than the little bit I learned in that 11 day detox. Gotcha. So with that being said, um, I didn't think at the time that I had a problem with alcohol. Right. I thought well, I'm not doing opiates. I can still drink. Yep. And I'm almost positive that that night that I got out of detox, I was drinking wine. Right. <laughs> I thought that was okay. Yeah. Um, my parents didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. And so I went straight back to that. It wasn't as heavy as it was. Sure. But I I went back to using something. Right. I still needed that, that mind alteration. I still needed something to make me f- feel different. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I like what you said, you know, you didn't really know how recovery worked. Um, and that's where a lot of us get to when we have our first, you know, scare with addiction is like, okay, I want to get clean. Mm-hmm. Right. But I don't know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times that's where, you know, we start smoking some weed again, yeah. or we start drinking again because mm-hmm. we don't really know how this whole thing looks. Yeah. And the idea of forever being clean is a frightening sentence. And honestly, I, you know, I still struggle with that. That's a, that's a long time. Um, but I also hadn't hit a rock bottom. Yes. I hadn't lost everything. Mm -hmm. Um, my marriage did end. Um, that was a direct result of that. Um, but I still had a home. I still had a job. My relationship with my family was strained, but it was still there. Um, so I, I didn't hit my bottom yet. So, and not to get off subject, but it's on rock bottoms. I mean, now that you're someone who oversees um, those that are going through this journey of recovery, are there ever times that you run across somebody who comes into the program and then they leave quickly and the first thought in your head is like, well, maybe they just haven't hit bottom yet. That's a thought I have all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And it looks different for everybody. Sure. And you know, I'm, I'm four and a half years sober now. Um, and there are times that I think, did I, but did I hit my rock bottom? You mm-hmm. still question those things yeah. as somebody in, in sobriety for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. There's times you meet somebody whose story just kind of like blows yours out of the water. Right. And you're like, wait, did I really hit bottom? Yeah. But, but like you said, it's different for everybody. That's right. 
only you know really what your rock bottom right. feels like. Right. So um, when did you hit rock bottom? So like I said, I went back to drinking. Yeah. Um, I quickly found out that that wasn't doing it for me anymore. Yeah. I still needed, I felt, I still needed something to make me feel different, to make me feel better. I, I don't know how to describe it, but um, I had remember hearing in the past that prescription Adderall gives you this natural energy and this euphoric high and um, I knew where to get some. And I was like, I'm just gonna try that. It's not opiates, it's a, you know, it's a prescription, it's not illegal. Yeah. Um, so I started dabbling in that and um, very quickly got addicted to that. Um, and just like with the pills, that was something that I financially couldn't keep up with. Um, and then I was surrounding myself with some, some people that happened to um, use drugs themselves, like hardcore real drugs. And they introduced yeah. me to methamphetamines. They said, hey, this is same thing. You know, it's just cheaper and easier to get. And yep. I, I said, okay. Yeah. It was just that, it was that simple. It was put in front of me and my addict brain said, I need something yes. um, to feel um, excited and energetic. And somebody introduced it to me and I grabbed it. And that was the beginning of my rock bottom. <laughs> <laughs> and it very quickly went to all things bad. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, that's such a common occurrence. Um, prescription medication leading to the use of meth yeah, or heroin yeah, um, because it's cheaper yeah, and it'll do the same thing and then more. Yeah. And it gave me everything that I was looking for instantaneously. I remember um, the first time that I had used it, I was smoking it at the time and yeah. I thought all my problems were gone. I could take on the world. I mean, I had more energy than I ever knew what to do with. Um, and I knew nothing really about the drug. I knew, I didn't know how far um, it would take me or how, you know, how, how low it would take me. But I mean, it quickly took everything I had. Um, I was, it took all my money, first of all. Yeah, tends to do that. <laughs> yeah, um, but but beyond that, the most important thing for me is I started isolating away from my family because uh, I didn't want them to know for sure. Yeah. Um, and once I started isolating from them, I let everything else go because um, I felt like I didn't have... I didn't have to show up for anybody. I didn't have to be present. I could just yeah. do my drugs, hang out with my new quote unquote friends <laughs> and be fine. I'll be fine. And um, I lost my job. Ultimately, I lost my home. Um, and I was just digging myself into this hole further and further. I didn't know who to talk to. Mm. Um, I didn't at the time. I didn't want to talk to anybody. It was still fun for me. Right. Because if you talk to somebody, then you have to stop. Exactly. I was still having fun, <laughs> even though I was losing everything. It's weird. I was losing yeah. everything, but it was still fun. And the, I think the fun was, it was changing the way that I physically felt. Yeah. Um, I very quickly turned into smoking, or I went from smoking it to, to every other way you could do it, yeah. to ultimately um, being an IV user. Wow. And when that came, um, I mean, my world fell apart with that first, that first use. Yeah. Um, I, at that point I had only friends that were in the drug world and they were getting, it was a rougher and rougher crowd. 
Yeah. Like daily. Um, I ended up selling drugs mm -hmm. to pay for my habit because I didn't have a job. Yeah. Nobody was helping me financially. I had checked out from my family. They had no idea what was going on. I, I literally checked out. Wow. Um, for about five years. Wow, five years. The family just doesn't really know where they you are. They had no idea. The only time they saw me um, was whenever they would check to see if I was arrested. Uh-huh. Um, which those were definitely my rock bottom moments. Yeah. I, I ended up getting arrested 11 different times. Wow. Um, in the state of Oklahoma within about a year and a half, um, mostly due to um, my drug use. Yeah. And then one of those arrests was for drug trafficking and landed me right in prison. <laughs> That's, you know, it, it's it's funny when we look back at the time, you know, and our thinking of where we were, you know, what was going on in our head, all this bad stuff is happening mm -hmm. and we're not very quick to look for that common denominator of why all this bad stuff is yeah. happening. Yeah. I can, you know, we, Oh, we're just, we're having a bad go of it. Yeah. And just don't have any luck in the world. Or yeah. They don't understand me. It's like, Oh, but it all points back to this. Yeah. And I really thought that eventually I would get myself out of those holes. Yeah. But I, but I wasn't willing to put the drugs down because they still were making me feel feel the way I wanted to feel. Yes. They were, it was filling a hole that I didn't know at the time that I had. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it landed me incarcerated in the state of Oklahoma. Wow. So you go to prison. I did. And what was your sentence? I got a 10 year sentence. Okay. Um, I was given the option to take or to participate in a drug program while I was on the yard. And upon completion of that, they would let me go. Okay. So I was there for about a year and a half. Um, but I spent 2016, 2018 in and out of county jails, ultimately prison. Mm -hmm. And there for a year and a half after that. Wow. Yeah. So, but when, so when you finally go into prison though, is there a sense of relief with your family because they finally know where you are? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I remember... The last day I used was February 18th, 2018. Mm -hmm. That was my last arrest. And I ended up um, in Sequoia County Jail, uh, Sequoia, uh, Salisaw, Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, sitting there and I was just done. I was tired. Nobody was bonding me out. I had no friends. My family absolutely wasn't going to help me in that way. Right. Um, my, my mom had attended Finding Hope for years and ah. knew how to set pretty firm boundaries, unbeknownst to me. Right. She was attending Finding Hope in the so, background. Not to cut you off, when you, so while you're out there running and she has no idea where you are, she's attending Finding Hope. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. She, um, she's been attending that pretty much since the conception of it. Wow. Um, and it helped her tremendously. So whenever I was in county jail this last time and I had just kind of let go a little bit, um, when I called her, she was ready to accept that call and, and deal with me. However, however, you know, I needed to be dealt with at that moment. Um, yeah. just so happened this last time I called her just to tell her where I was and that I was okay. And I was seemingly safe. I mean, I was in County jail, but I was safe. Um, right. Not in the streets. Yeah. And I wasn't, I wasn't asking her for anything. I wasn't, um, trying to get out of anything. I kind of, I, and I don't know why that time was different, but I kind of accepted my, my fate. Right. Here we are. Yeah. This is, this is where it's landed me. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, 
parents out there listening right now, um, if you've got a loved one or, you know, a, a son, daughter, anything like that, who's still struggling in addiction, there's a meeting for you right now. Mm-hmm. Um, not when they decide to get clean, yep. not when they make that decision. There's a meeting for you right now. Um, as we said in the break, Finding Hope Support Groups has 40 meetings across the country right yep. now. So visit findinghope.today if that is you. But, yeah. um, okay, so you're in, you're in the system now. Yep. You end up doing about a, you know, a year and a half mm-hmm. in prison. That's not counting all the time in and out of county. That's right. For a couple of years. So yeah. um, I'm guessing it's your mom who finally tells you about Hope is Alive. Yeah. So while I was awaiting sentencing, actually, my mom already had talked to um, Amanda, Amanda White and Allie Lang. Okay. Um, and about me coming in and right. suggested that to me while I was in county jail waiting my, my sentencing and I was ready to do whatever my mom asked me to do. I wanted that relationship back. Um, I wanted to be healthy. I knew the lifestyle I was living. I wasn't raised like that. That's not, that wasn't Mm. me. Um, And I was finally realizing that. Yeah. So I um, reached out to Amanda White while I was, um, while I was sitting in county jail and talked about Hope is Alive. Mm -hmm. The judge was not releasing me. They sentenced me to prison. Um, As my time was ending, I ended up calling Amanda back and, and said, okay, I'm getting ready to get out. I'm willing to do whatever. At the time, it was pretty much whatever my mom suggested that I do. Um, she said, you can't come home, but you can go somewhere here, somewhere to go. And so she sent me some info about Hope is Alive while I was there. And I read it over and I said, okay. Yeah. Because your way hadn't worked. Absolutely not. <laughs> so now we're going to try someone else's way. Yeah. And there's no shame in that. No, no, there wasn't. Um, you know, I, I knew enough that like, I, I couldn't go if I, if I, if I got out of prison and went anywhere on my own, I was not going to make it back out. Yeah. Um, so she presented me with this and I, I trust my mom and that she only wanted the best for me. And we had been rebuilding a relationship the whole time I was locked up. Right. Um, and so I went six days after I got released, I entered the hope is alive program. Entered the hope is alive program. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, um, when you get to the program, I mean, were you, were you just ready to, okay, yes, yes, yes. Or was there a little <laughs> hesitancy towards what they were asking of you? Um, so I've always been, I, I think I've always been a yes person in the program. Um, I've, I've, you know, I was willing to, to follow rules and to mm-hmm. do what was asked of me. Was I excited to do those things? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, I just come off a yard with a thousand women. The last sure. thing I wanted to do was live with you yeah. know, 15 other women. Right. Um, and, and I really, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Yeah. Um, but after some months of being in the home um, and kind of letting my guard down, it started to change. And I was, I went from just saying yes to being excited to do things, to just have a normal life again. Yeah. Um, getting reacclimated to both the world and then also the recovery world. Right. That was a lot. It is a lot thrown at you at once. Um, I know, I mean, so was there a point for you? Cause this is a question I was, I'm going to start asking everybody, you know, you come into the program and it sounds like you were kind of like me, like you were just ready for something different yeah. and you're willing to say yes, yeah. but you're not really sure what you're saying yes to. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think all of us that have gone through the program hit a certain point where it's like, okay, I cannot imagine starting this whole thing over. Yeah. 
you know, and I think that's when the real healing can begin in a way, because you look at how much better your life's gotten. You know, for me, it was four months in and I was like, okay, this is going to be hard. Mm -hmm. I can tell, but I cannot imagine starting this whole process over. Yeah. So what was that like? Was there a point like that for you? You said a few months in or? A few months in, I started um, letting, like I said, letting my guard down, making some friends in the home. Um, Yeah. But to be honest, my program, the way I work my program, my recovery um, didn't have a major shift until I moved to Wichita. Okay. That was a big game changer for me because I was, you know, I was asked to intern or I I signed up uh, to intern to be a program manager, not Mm -hmm. really knowing what that looked like, but I was like, what? I think I could be good in a leadership role. So let's just, yeah, let's just throw my, my hat in the ring. Um, and I did intern very briefly, (laughs) very briefly. Um, and then I came up to Wichita to, to program manage this home. And it was that transition where I kind of was out on my own a little bit. Yeah. And I was leading other women that shifted the way that I thought about recovery and the program itself. Right. Um, when I was seeing it work in other people as well as myself, something just changed. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, I'm a totally different person here in Wichita than I ever was in Oklahoma city. Um, and I don't know, I think it was a God thing very much that I came up here. I grew spiritually. I grew in my recovery. I grew as a person, as a leader in every way. I think a person can grow. Yeah. I did that with this move. And that's, you know, I love these conversations because that's one of the coolest things about recovery in general is everyone, it looks, it just looks different for everyone. That, that moment when we have that big change. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people that'll tell you that it happens early on, but just like you said, you know, this happens with you getting a job Yeah. essentially. Yeah. And kind of, uh, I don't want to say being thrown to the wolves, but kind of maybe elevated a little quicker than you were planning. Absolutely. With the move to Wichita. <laughs> yeah. And here you are, uh, you're, you're kind of, obviously you've got the support of the entire team, but right. in regards to the home, you know, you're, you're by yourself mm-hmm. and now they're looking at you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that I work really well under pressure right? and that's where I shine the most yes. or I'm learning that about yes. myself. And I do feel that I've had this natural leader instinct in me most of my life. I'm the oldest of four daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I got that um, opportunity to do that, to lead these women, it changed everything. That's so awesome. It changed everything. Yeah. Yeah. And today you're not just leading women in the homes, but like we said at the beginning of the podcast, you're leading people who are leading those women. That's right. Yeah. And that's just so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I oversee two staff members. Yeah. Um, it's it's, it was a different, it was, it's different for me, but I've, I've enjoyed it so far. Yeah. yeah. Just, well, I, th- I think everyone uh, listening who knows you would, would uh, agree. Julie Quinlan's still just killing the game. That's still just, <laughs> <laughs> that's all we can do, right? Just, right? just day by day, try. Yeah. Well, Julie, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Um, I always love hearing your story and uh, hopefully everybody out there got as much out of it as I did today. If you're new to the Hope Dealers podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. Give us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone who you think needs to hear it because that's the whole idea is just sharing these stories with those who, uh, who need to hear them. And we will see you all next time. This is the Hope Dealers podcast. A new place, a new home for a while. Let me feel alive. 
nothing to hold me back. Take my time, just enjoy the ride. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hope Dealers Podcast. If you or someone you know needs to get in touch with Hope is Alive, or maybe you just want some more information, please visit hopeisalive.net or call 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. That's 1-844-3-HOPE-NOW. Oh, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel so alive.